All right. Whoa. Really loud. Good morning. You know, when you look at the whole, all the events for our Holy Week, I hope you don't just see them as events and programs. I think they've been designed so that uh, we are able to journey and there are important milestones for us, for opportunities for us to respond to this whole land season. Um, our dawn prayer this year is a labyrinth. You know what's the difference between a labyrinth and a maze? A maze, right, has many entrances and exits and you tend to get lost. Whereas a labyrinth, there's only one way, okay? You walk to the centre and that is to bring you to the centre of God's heart. And so that is a personal reflection. I encourage you all to come because of various time slots. And then the CPR really is a coming together corporately, not just you alone, but corporately we come to reflect on Good Friday. And of course, in recent years, we have baptism service. We remove baptism from our main worship because we think it deserves a time of its own where we can listen to the testimonies of our new brothers and sisters. So again, I encourage you to come. Take it as an opportunity to really listen to stories, the love story that God is writing in the lives of others and be encouraged because they're going to join us as one body, as our church members. And then finally, of course, the climax is Resurrection Sunday. So I hope you don't take them as just programs or activities, but they can be meaningful because they're opportunities for us to respond. Our series this year, The Greatest Love Story Ever Told from Creation to Christ, we began in January to see God's creation and how sin came into the world. But God promised the seed of the woman, Messiah who comes to save us. In February, we see Messiah comes from the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In March, we see now the family of Abraham has become a people. God is going to bring them into the promised land and become a nation. And we realize all these stories in the Old Testament, they are not just individual stories there to teach us moral values. But really, they piece up to one story, the redemptive story of God, the greatest love story ever told. And so today we will be talking about crossing in the Jordan and what it means to new covenant believers like us. Let us pray. Father, commit this time to you. I pray for Holy Spirit to convict our hearts. That we once again we will see Christ lifted up and you glorified. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Is there something rather than nothing? What kind of question is that? You know, that's one of the most important philosophical questions. It's first asked by this famous mathematician and philosopher called Gottfried Leibniz. He's the guy who came up with calculus, okay? So you don't like math, go blame him. But he also came up with the binary system that is the heart of our modern-day computers. Of course, being a committed Lutheran, he argues that at the beginning there was something, it's not nothing, there was God. But not everybody can accept this explanation, right? Or this answer. But yet it is one of the most important questions within the philosophical world because how we answer this question, whether there's something or nothing, will affect how we understand the meaning of life, how we explore the meaning of life. Recently, I came to know that there's this movie that actually is made based on this idea that different philosophies result in different ways we see meaning of life. Okay, and the movie is called Everywhere, Everything, or Everything Everywhere All at Once. Okay, uh, 
And you know, it's no joke, this movie became the, the most, the movie that won the most Oscars in the history, okay? And of course, it is uh, the Best Actress Award went to Michelle Yeoh, the first Asian actress. So it's a big deal. But first, a disclaimer, okay? I don't, cannot watch this kind of movies, alright? It's too high level for me. These days, my movies, you take a gun, bang, 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 everybody dies. Or Korean drama, you know, no need to use your brain cells. This one a bit chim, okay? It's based on this multiverse theory. What is multiverse? It means every time we make a decision, it causes a parallel universe to happen. For example, uh, I got married, but maybe there's a universe where I didn't get married. Then we have children. Maybe in a universe we didn't have children. So there are now there are three universes, right? One that I was not married, one that I was married without kids, one that I was married with kids. And each universe is a different reality, a different me. Okay, you don't understand, never mind. As I said, very cheap. I also don't understand. But essentially, Michelle Yeoh, she plays this character. She opens a laundromat. And then she had to face a tax audit. So an ordinary trip to the tax department turned out to be a universal hopping adventure. Because when she went there, she, there was this, her, a different form of a daughter from a parallel universe that appeared and tried to kill her. Apparently, the universe came out of this way of hopping into different realities. So Michelle Yeoh began universal, universe hopping because she wants to find the reason why. Why is this daughter after me, you know? She came to this everything bagel. You know bagel? The round thing, the bread. You look into it and you can see all the different universes, all the different realities. And she realizes no matter what she does, the end is tragic. Okay, the, it makes no difference. Whatever she does, you know, in the end is bad. And so, this presents to us a nihilistic worldview, which means there's really nothing in the beginning, therefore, life has no purpose. But you know how the movie ends? They conclude at the end that we need to be kinder to each other. Okay, this is what we call existential worldview. Because there's no real meaning, therefore, you create your meaning, I create my meaning, uh, and the movie, their meaning that they create is to be kind. So don't judge each other, we have our own meaning. But yet, within the movie, there are statements made by the characters. For example, the, towards the end, when Michelle Yeoh spoke to her own daughter from a universe who came, who risked her life to come save her, okay? She said to her daughter, surely there must be something that caused you to take risks and display sacrificial love. She, what she's saying is that if there's truly nothing, then... All these deeper desires we have, love, security, belonging, worth, justice, truth, they actually don't make sense because it's only based on your view and mind view. But surely it must make sense. Surely your sacrificial love means something. But what is it? Now, the movie doesn't answer that question. But Sarah Chu, who wrote an article to the Gospel Coalition, she said of this movie, she said, not even a movie committed to existentialism can escape the question of this something or someone that causes love to make sense. Is there something rather than nothing? For us as Christians, we believe, of course, there's something that's God, not only in the beginning, but at the end, we will face God. And God desires for us to have abundant life. But what is this abundant life? That is what I want us to consider today as we look at Joshua chapter 3, of the Israelites going into the promised land. We'll see God's role in this abundant life. Secondly, our role and then our response. God's role, our role and our response. 
So God will lead us into abundant life. So Joshua and the officers commanded the people, saying, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, with the Levitical priests carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. However, there shall be between you and it a distance of 2,000 cubits by measure, meaning about one kilometer. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed by this way. They say stay away a distance because there are a lot of people, right? You can see how to follow the ark. The ark represents the presence of God. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourself, for tomorrow the Lord will surely do wonders among you. And Joshua spoke to the priest, saying, Take up the Ark of Covenant, cross over ahead of the people. So they took up the Ark of Covenant and went ahead of the people. Okay, can you all read this, please? Again, we say, there appears, say, we do this so that we may know. God told Joshua, you mean the people will know that I am with you just as I was with Moses. Then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. Joshua said, by this you shall know that the living God is among you. Okay, he will clear all these tribes from the promised land. Behold, the ark of covenant of the Lord of the earth is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. Take for yourself twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man from each tribe. It shall come about when the soles of the feet of the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, touches or rests in the waters of Jordan. The waters of Jordan will be cut off. The waters which are flowing down above will stand still in a heap. He says you will part the Jordan River. Now what is for Moses the greatest miracle in his life? Crossing the Red Sea, right? And so, now it's 40 years later. Moses died. This is a new generation. And God wants them to know that I am with you. I am with Joshua. And so he performs a similar miracle, opening the Jordan. And he brings them in just as he has promised Abraham that he will do so, so many years ago. It shows God's faithfulness. And so three times in this text, he reminds the people, I am with you. I'm bringing you in. But friends, what has this story of crossing the Jordan got to do with us New Covenant believers? Hebrews chapter 4 says this, Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. He's saying they're entering the promised land, okay, what it means to them. At that time, he says some of them, because of disobedience, couldn't enter. He again fixes a certain day, today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as it had been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Last year when I went through Hebrews, I told Hebrews chapter 4 is a quotation of Psalm 95 written by David. In Psalm 95, David recorded two incidences that happened within the first 40 days of them leaving Egypt. The first, they ran out of water, they complained. God asked Moses to strike the rock and there was water. The second, they were at Kadesh Barnea. They were going into the promised land after 40 days. So they sent 12 spies in. Two came out, Caleb and Joshua. They said, let's go. God has promised the land for us. 
The other ten says, no, the people in there are like giants, you know, we are like grasshoppers. And unfortunately, the Israelites listened to them and didn't go in. And so God said, okay, then you don't get to go in. You walk here for 40 days, every day you walk you, is equivalent to a year. So you spend 40 years in the wilderness. And so, right here, David, what is he saying? He's telling his readers, you must trust in God's provision and protection. Don't be like our ancestors and disobey God. Today is the, is the day you repent to enter that rest. But we ask, we say, wait a minute. You see, to the Israelite, entering rest is entering into the promised land. But they are already in the promised land. Why is it David is saying that there is another rest? This is the point of the author of Hebrews when he continues and say, if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So that must mean there is another rest, not just entering the promised land. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. This rest is modeled after God's rest. For the one who entered his rest for himself also rested from his days as God did from his. In creation, God worked six days and rests one day. What is this rest? You know, the author of Hebrews, he couldn't find a word to express this, this rest in Greek and so he, he made up his own word. Sabbath rest is actually one word, sabbatismos. What does it mean? For some reason, he feels that the, the Greek words for rest cannot cut it. So he came up with this word. It models after God's rest. You ask yourself, does God need to rest? No, of course not. So why did he rest one day, you know? So that he can enjoy his creation with a relationship with Adam and Eve. And so today when we say Sabbath rest, one day out of seven, we set it apart. We don't hold it legalistically. Like We do it so that God can bless us. It's a point where we mark ourselves as people of God. It demonstrates the lordship over our lives that we are willing to pause, come before God, worship Him, enjoy fellowship with brothers and sisters, serve. That's the rest. Rest that we can experience because of our intimate relationship with God. But this rest ultimately points to the final rest in our resurrection when we go to heaven, when we see Christ again. So, this author summarizes the idea. The author of Hebrews called his readers to faith in Jesus. The enjoyment of the blessing which accompany that faith. That faith in Jesus, believers today enjoy peace, joy, and fellowship with the living God as part of their rest in Him. This foretaste which we now enjoy will become a complete unclouded experience of bliss at the time of the return of Jesus and the resurrection. As believers, we can say, Hallelujah. He's saying this rest, we always talk about rest. What rest? Does it mean I don't do anything, I go shopping on Sunday? No, it's the rest because of a relationship with God that we can experience now and ultimately when we face Jesus again. So how do we experience this abundant life? God leads us into this abundant life of rest. But we experience it when we begin with the end in mind. You see, today, if you didn't know you were coming to QBC, how do you know which direction to drive or what bus to take? You don't write, you just go in circles because you don't know what's the destination. Every investment strategy, we have an exit strategy, right? Before you go in, you must know how you want to come out. Likewise, at the end of our lives, friends, what is God going to ask from us? In some ways, what is our KPI? Because you don't know, then you end up doing all the other things. What is just before our eyes? Study, get married, find a job, have children, you know? One thing after another. 
And so in my pastor's voice, I shared C.S. Lewis's quote, Christians that made the most impact on this world is those who thought most about heaven. It's not where we think about the afterlife and then we bochap this world, you know. But the more we understand heaven, the more we know we want to, we, our lives make a difference and we want to leave an impact. How do you lead that abundant life? By beginning with the end in mind. God leads us into this, but we also need to respond to trust and obey. So when the people set out their tents to cross the Jordan, with the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and when those who carried the Ark came into the Jordan, and the feet of the priests carrying the Ark were dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of harvest. This is during harvest, water came over, and they say the moment their feet touched the water, the waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap a great distance away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon. And those who were flowing down towards the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. So the people crossed opposite Jericho. And the priests who carried the Ark of Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. <clears throat> so it describes them going across. They step into the water, then the water dry up. But why must they do that? Right? I mean, during the Red Sea, Moses just shook his, his, the, the staff and the Red Sea opened. So why this one must make them stand in the water going wet their feet, you know? In church history, theologians have seen that Moses helping the people leave Egypt and crossing the Red Sea is, is equivalent to Jesus saving us out of the bondage of sin and death. But for Joshua leading your people across the Jordan parallels Jesus leading us into abundant life to follow Him and ultimately in death when we see Him face to face. And so crossing this Jordan to us is experiencing the rest in Christ. And you ask yourself, so what is this rest? What does it look like? Does it mean I don't do anything or every Sunday I come to worship, that's rest? Now, certainly not. Apostle Paul says, can you read this? Paul says, lead a quiet life, a restful life. What is that? Does it mean I don't do anything? No, do your business. Not just your business, use your hands to work. Why did Paul say this? You see, in the Greco-Roman worldview, work, the best form of work is use your mouth. Don't sweat, don't use your hands. That's why in the Greeks and Romans, they have a lot of philosophers, right? Every day do nothing, just sit there and talk. Because to them, using your hands, manual labor is bad work and so they leave it to the slaves. But in the Christian worldview, it is different. God created the Garden of Eden. He appeared as a, as a gardener. Jesus came into this world. He came as a carpenter. Both used their hands, involved in manual labor, their sweat. And so when we look at work, it turns our whole worldview around. Work is not about skilled or unskilled, good pay or low pay. 
Here is about restful work or restless work. I'm sure you understand. Some work when we do is restful because we know God has called us here. We are not concerned about what people will say about our work. We know we do the best because we are most concerned about how God sees us even when no one is looking. You know you're called to do this. Whereas restless work, on the other hand, is you don't find this sense of fulfillment. You can hold on to your work so tight it becomes an idol. You refuse to rest, you overwork. Or you just, so bold, you know, just try to get your monthly pay. Because after all, if no one is looking, it's okay. So how do we view work? It's just like in the past, I shared before, you know, when I was still dating my wife. Every time I go out, I would say, oh, is God calling me? You know, why is my work at the bank so meaningless? And then later she shared with me, she said, if a bit longer, uh, you go on like that, I was going to break up with you. Every time dating, you always whine, you know? Because I felt like, this is not what I'm called to do. Do you experience restful work or restless work? So you see, this rest in Christ is not that you retire, sit at home, watch movie, go and play golf, travel the world, and don't, or earn a lot of money and don't have to work. Work is an important part of how we love God and love people. And because we have this rest, we are certain of our eternal destiny. Therefore, we are able to face the challenges of this world. There was a lady, she took a ship over to New York. In the midst of this, there was a huge storm. Everybody was afraid the ship would capsize. They were worried. But she remained calm. In fact, she gathered all the children and read Bible stories to them to keep them calm. Finally, when the ship arrived safely in New York, the captain asked her, he said, how are you able to remain calm when we were afraid? Now, she's a Christian woman and she said, I have two daughters. One lived in New York, one in heaven. When we were going through the storm, I thought to myself, in a matter of hours, I will see my, one of my daughter, either the one in New York or the one in heaven. And to me, it doesn't make a difference. Friends, that is our faith in our eternal destiny. We know where we are going and therefore we know how to navigate and know what to do to make it worth it to trust and obey. Trust the Lord and obey, respond to Him. So how we answer the question, is there something rather than nothing? If we believe there's something the world, there's a world to come. How, what should we do so that at the end of the day, it counts for something? How we view this question will determine how we respond to our desires and we all have for food, for sleep, for pleasure, the deeper ones for love, for security, for accomplishment. So Philip Yancey, he says, if I see myself as one more species of animal with no life beyond this one, no accountability to a higher power, meaning there's nothing, then why not follow the pleasure instinct to the end? There's no meaning anyway. Create your own meaning. On the other hand, if I see this planet as God's world, my longings as rumours of another world, then I want to connect those clues to God's overall plan. See, if I have certain desires I cannot fulfill in this world, there are clues pointing to another world that is to come. And when I connect those two, I want to bring the two worlds together 
How? I do so by accepting that we human beings must look beyond ourselves, above ourselves for direction in ordering out our desires. Which is what Michelle Yeoh said to her daughter, right? Surely there must be something that caused you to love me like that. If we believe there's God and God gives us abundant life, He leads us into abundant life, friends, our response is to trust and obey. And so we move on. Our response is to move from success to significance, not just pursuing success in this world, but significance in God's eyes. Hebrews chapter 4 concludes when he talks about this rest. He says, Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. So Jesus gives us rest, but we must be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience like the Israelites. How? Obey God's word, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the hearts. Obey God's word. But here is not just God's word. I believe he also refers to the word of God made flesh, Jesus Christ. Because in the next verse it says, there is no creature hidden from his sight. See, he was talking about the, the word, right? And suddenly he says, there's no creature hidden from his sight. Previously, he's saying the word pierces into your heart. Here he's saying you can't hide from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let's read this. So his conclusion to find rest is not just trust, the, obey the word, but to trust. Trust Jesus, our great high priest, who is like us, who understands our weaknesses and we can draw near to him. When we draw near to him, it is a throne of grace. He's there to welcome us. You know, last night though, after service, somebody approached me and in tears, she was just talking and she said, you know, I've been years since I've been to church, 20 over years. But for the last year or so, she has been attending our evening service. You know, you come for evening service, there are a lot of people from other churches. <laughs> Maybe it's, that, that it's a good time slot for our people, okay? So I knew they are here. And she asked me, how can I join a DG? You know, and then she started tearing up. I, I mean, I don't understand, but all I said is, well, come back. You know, Jesus is here to embrace you because this is what the Word says. When we turn, we find that we are our high priest is one who understands us. For whatever reason, for the last 20 years, she was away from church, but he says, draw near and we find the throne of grace. Trust and obey to enter that rest. And so when we talk about abundant life, let's get concrete about it. What is not just in the clouds. What is abundant life? A life of rest in Christ. Here it shows us Scripture says, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus lays down his life so that we can have 
life. Not just life, but life abundant. And some people will say this abundant life then refers to material wealth. Now, I do believe God blesses us materially. But this is not what it's saying. Jesus says a servant cannot be higher than a master. And if the master lays down his life, friends, so will we. And yet this is part of abundant life. The Apostle Paul says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited, to fix their hope on uncertain riches, but instead fix on God, who is the one who supplies these riches. Supplies us with all things to enjoy. So God does bless us, but our hope is not in the things, in the benefits, but in the benefactor, in God who richly supplies us all things to enjoy. So there's nothing wrong. Instruct them to do good, be rich in good works, be generous, ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. NIV said, life that is truly life. So you see, life is not just breathing. Life is not just studying, working, setting a family, you know, going through the motion. Life that is truly life is when our hope is in God, we use our riches to be generous. That is abundant life. As I was preparing this sermon, you know, our deacon Irene, who is now with the Lord, her journal popped out. Because I keep things electronically and sometimes things just pop out. Maybe it's the Holy Spirit. I don't know why things pop out, but they popped out. Okay, and I read this, her journal. You know, reading her journal sometimes is like reading the Gospels. Um, she said, which I'll share with you, since every morning I wake up with a sense of security, a sense of contentment, a sense of being loved. I am now day 63 into my cancer journey. You know, she was diagnosed with cancer and for some reasons, because of the conditions, she decided she would not seek uh, medical help to cure because it's hard. And so she says she's in day 63. Every day she kept her journal and she sends to different people. Throughout the events that happened over the past two months, it seems an irony that I'm able to declare that I'm being loved, that I am God's beloved. It's difficult, but my heart affirms this truth. And as I allow this truth to sink into the innermost recesses of my heart, I am awed. I'm thankful and grateful how God chart my days and order my ways. Jesus has always been right beside me leading me along this unknown terrain and I made it through the roughness and the toughness. I trust that Jesus has my best interest at heart and as I follow Jesus closely, I discover God uses my days, uses my moments to display His glory. It is exceedingly thrilling to experience this truth and to know the deep thirst and hunger in my inner being can be fulfilled only from the moment Jesus Christ came into my heart. I pray for mercy on all those whom God has placed across my path. My family, my relatives, my friends, my acquaintances. Have mercy on them, O Lord, like how you gave me mercy. If it is not for your mercy, would I have on my own ability enter your kingdom, experience the abundant life which I am living now, no, it's entirely by God's grace alone. Therefore, I pray to the Sovereign Lord to look into the hearts of all those whom I've been praying for, 
to look and see their needs, meet them accordingly so as to bless them abundantly. Human minds cannot comprehend how the all-eternal God can stoop to the level of His creation, created human beings, to live amongst us 2,000 years ago and to live in us in this present time. I told you, reading her journals is like reading the Gospels. And by the way, every time she sent me, I really asked for permission to share. I knew that one day I would use it, okay? So she approved. But you know, towards the end, uh, the diaconate and the pastors, we raised a sum of money. We gave it to her as a love gift. After she went home to the Lord, her husband offered the rest back to the church. And we told him, actually, there's no need. This whole sum is for you to use. But he said his wife gave him clear instructions before she left. He said, we only use what we need. And whatever we don't need, we return to the church. You know, to me, that's abundant life. We don't place our hope in money. We don't place our hope in people around us. We place our hope in God because we are sure of the end point. We live with beginning from the end, with the end in mind. You sure where you're going? If you're sure, then what are we pursuing? What are we doing in our lives today? If the story of Joshua is about leading Christ leading us into abundant life, I ask you, how abundantly are you living today? How do we live abundantly? It's to trust and obey, to respond, to choose what is right rather than what is convenient, to do what pleases God rather than what pleases us. You know, December 8th, 1989. Paul Elishman, he was travelling to this town called Tbilisi in Georgia, Soviet Union. That was the birthplace of Stalin. When the plane arrived, he was whisked off to the biggest theatre in town. It was packed with 2,000 people from various levels of leadership from the Communist Party. They were there anticipating the premiere of the Jesus film. Paul Elishman was the one who produced Jesus' film for Campus Crusade. He said, this scene before me is unbelievable. Just a few months ago, 4,000 plus people were were gassed to death by the soldiers because of their revolt. And today, I'm able to present this film. At the end of the Jesus' film is the gospel presentation. And again, Elishman was awed. He said, you know, when this movie premiered in the US, Warner Brothers edited the last part, the gospel part. But yet, in this communist country, I'm able to play it out openly. He didn't dare to turn his head around. He thought maybe they will all get up and leave. So he just sat sat there until the presentation was over and there was just complete silence. And he thought, did they all get up and leave already? So slowly, he turned his head around and he realized not a single soul left their seats. Suddenly, there was a sound of weeping. A murmur of prayer swept through the room and then there was standing ovation. People came forward to take Bibles. An 85-year-old man held Elishman's hand and said, the last two hours were the most important, meaningful hours of my life. And Elishman said, I wish my children were here to witness this so that they know what their parents have been doing all their lives. This is the moment I've been living for 25 years ago 
when I got my MBA, wanted to launch in a new career, God changed my path. That morning I prayed. I said, God, you know, I've always made my own plans and asked you to bless it. I want Jesus, but I also want control. But today, I want to surrender my life to you. I want the abundant life. I want to go wherever you ask me to go. And he remembers the plague in front of his, the words on a picture in front of his grandma's bed that says, one life that will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. He said, I never imagined 25 years later through the gospel, the Jesus film, I'll be able to present the gospel to millions of people. And this scene before me, thousands of people in tears reaching out in hunger for God's word makes my life worth living. This is the moment that I've been liberating for. You know, friends, have you ever had that moment you feel it makes your life worth the living? It makes everything you do worth it because you experience God's work. Many years ago, I went to Jordan at the time my girlfriend and a few sisters. Now, we always say when you're dating, uh, don't go overseas alone, right? Why you untap yourself? Go with a group of people. More than going with a group of people, don't just go for a tour. Go and serve God. So we went to Jordan. Why did we go to Jordan? Because at that time, Jordan has a lot of factories making clothes, all branded clothes. They were hire seamstresses from China. And one day, four sisters walked into an Arabic church, Arab church, and they sat through worship. They didn't understand a single word, but they just wanted to be in the presence of God. After a few weeks, somehow they communicated with the pastor, even though they didn't understand what they are saying. But they gave the pastor the email of my pastor in Singapore. So that pastor sent an email saying, hey, there are four ladies here who claim to know you. Do you want to come over to Jordan? Ten months later, my pastor went over and the four ladies have grown to a congregation of 300 in 10 months. So the four of us, we went there to help the pastor and every lunchtime, we'll go to different dormitories to lead their Bible study. In one of the dorms, the supervisor who is an Arab uh, didn't like that they were having this sort of meeting, so he locked up all the, all the doors. So we had to meet in the stairwell, a small group of us. And you know, when we were singing the song, stairwell got echo on, you know, like Gregorian chant, very holy. And then I look around a few of us, you know, this, we know a bit of their backstory. <coughs> One of them, a few months ago, she was just she was selling her body because she was so lonely. One of them was gambling and owed people a lot of money. One of them was filled with bitterness because of her past and her family. And yet they were standing around the circle singing with joy how God has changed their lives in just the few months. And you know, I remember as a young man standing there singing, I told God, this makes my life worth living. And I made God a promise that all my life, I said, God, you just give me a life that I can experience this again and again to know what abundant life really means. Have you ever had that moment that makes your life worth living? The abundant life in Christ. We begin with the end in mind when we trust and obey. Let us pray. I pray that as God has spoken to you, you will respond to Him in prayer. Perhaps in certain areas, we need to trust Him 
In certain areas, we need to obey Him. In certain areas, we need to turn to Him. And when we turn around, friends, you will see that Jesus is there with His embrace open waiting for you. For we have a great high priest who is one who understands us, who is like us, who is tempted in all ways but not sin. And therefore, we can come before Him in our time of need before His throne of grace. Let's take some time to respond to the Lord in your personal prayer.